understand the darkness within ourselves. Bienvenue and welcome to Cirque du Sound, a sonic trip brought to you by Cirque du Soleil. This is a show where we redefine the boundaries of creativity with some of today's most forward thinkers, doers, and creators. My name is Michel Laprise. I'm the creative guide at Cirque du Soleil, also a stage director of a few of our shows. And I'm very happy to be here at Cirque du Soleil. People say we make original, uh, heart-stopping and mind-expanding shows. People also say that each show is like its own special universe. Each universe has its own rules. Sometimes those rules are upside down. The ideas of these highly original shows, the stories, everything that we do in those shows, they can come from anywhere. For example, we're interested in the way a story or a show element often emerges out of tension. We often present paradox on our stage and from some form of essential conflict. The balance of light and darkness is something that we can express on our stages. Stories of good versus evil, or the shift between the old and the new. And so today on the show, we're going to delve into this a little bit more. And I'm going to be asking, how do these classic power struggles feed the drama? How are they related to creativity? Right now, in the background, you're hearing the music of Alegria. This is a unique Cirque du Soleil show. It's about the quest for power, the thirst for change, and the triumph of light over darkness. This is the perfect show to have as the background for this conversation, which is going to go into the dark and so that we can find our way to the light. You'll see what I mean in a minute. First, I am so excited for you to meet a man who has made a career spinning tales of gold out of bleak beginnings. I'm talking about screenwriter, novelist, producer, and director, John August. Hi, John. Welcome to our podcast. Bonjour, Michel. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. Your credit list includes much-loved stories and movies like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Corpse Bride, and Frankenweenie. The stories like that are so amazing and inspiring, and I've seen them many times. So uh, it's a, again, it's a big honor to have you on the show. You're a longtime Tim Burton collaborator, of course. You're also a novelist, a creator of the Arlo Finch fantasy fiction series for middle school kids. I could go on for a long time reading that list of credit, but I like people to to tell us with their own words about who they are and what they do. I would say I'm mostly a writer, and most of what I've written has been screenplays for movies. And so, while I've been able to write books and musicals since my first film came out in 1999, which was Go, mostly I've been writing for the big screen. And when you talk about writing for the big screen, I'm not just talking about sort of like the size and scope and spectacle and budget of some of the things I write. It's really the kinds of stories you end up writing for a big screen. Stories for 
movies are about two hours long, and they tend to be adventures that a character can only take once. They're transformative. So a character comes in at one place, and they leave at a different place completely changed. They've changed the world around them, but they themselves are different. That's so different than sort of what a character would encounter on a television show, for example. So like a weekly series, they can't change that much because they have to sort of stay back in the premise of what that show is. But in movies, they are big transformative things. Television is, is based around the idea of like there's an existing situation and a problem is introduced and then at the end of the 30 minutes or the hour, that problem is solved. Characters may change a little bit over the course of a season, but they're not making a giant change within the course of that one bit of time. And that's basically how that storytelling medium works. And that comes back to comic books do the same kind of thing. Anything that has to be repeated a lot cannot have a a giant transformation. Um, I think part of the reason why the Cirque shows appeal to me is they are about sort of these larger-than-life, big-scale transformations. And like you've come from one place, you're exiting a different place. Totally. And a a lot of it has to do with the empowerment of the character. Like you would see an acrobat doing something and with the level of difficulty increasing by the minute. And then so you are with that person and that person is just about to go beyond that limit. Is he going to succeed? Mm-hmm. Is he going to juggle that ninth ball? So it's almost like a transformation from within. It's, it's a lot about a collection of individual fears that transform into a collective joy. Michelle, what you're describing is that whether it's an act, which you can think of as being like a scene or the course of an entire show or performance, is there's going to be naturally be a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's really sort of what has changed in this world from the start to the end. And so what has changed with this when performers, you know, set up and sort of our expectations about what it can be accomplished with the human body at the start versus where they get to at the end. If they just started with the feats that they demonstrate at the end, it wouldn't be meaningful to us. I'm curious to hear you talk about the themes of light and darkness and how they've shown in your work. Well, most of my stories involve characters crossing from one world into another world. And so Go is its grounded. It's not a fantastical world, but there's a character who makes a choice to sort of try to pull off this tiny drug deal and really enter into a space that she's not familiar with and basically having to learn the rules of that world. Same mm-hmm. thing happens in Corpse Bride. You have a character who has to go into the land of the dead to find his true love. Uh, Frank and Weenie, you have a character who is trying to pierce the boundaries of life and death to bring his dog back from the dead. You know, these characters are crossing from one world into the next, and usually that other world is a dark world. And so they've come from a place that is normal and light, and they have to go into the darkness in order to achieve this thing that is outside of their reach. There's a, a primal quality to that. There's a, a quote that's generally you know, ascribed to Joseph Campbell, though he never actually said it, which is that the cave you fear to enter holds the answers you seek. And yeah. it's very much that sense that this character is scared to go into that dark place, but they know that the only way they're going to find their answer is in that dark place. And those are really the root of most of the stories I'm telling are some variation of characters crossing from this world into that world, undergoing a huge transformation and coming back to their first world as a new person. It's funny because Campbell was a big inspiration for the creation team of Mister in Vegas, which was our first resident show. And this whole grill of analysis of the show that's based on the thinking of Campbell and most of the people, they come and see the show, they see there's the coherence 
mm-hmm. the proposition, and that it's 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 also that's the most world beat and the most uh, connected to the, uh, the the deep instincts of humans. It's beautiful. Yes, I don't know if you've seen it with all the, the taiko drums at the beginning, and, and so Campbell was a huge inspiration for the team. Well, if you look at all the Cirque shows, and I've seen most of them, there's a, a recurring aspect of just taking little primal symbols and really exploiting them and exploring them. So the use of fire, the use of water, the use of these sort of fundamental things that Jung would say are sort of part of our collective unconsciousness. The, the reason why they feel like dreams is not just because they're abstract, it's because they're using these sort of bright signifiers of bigger things that we're sort of are hardwired to understand. Absolutely. I want to reference to Frank and Weenie. This was a short film that you helped Tim Burton adapt to a full-length feature in 2012. Uh, it's the story of a boy, Victor, who loves this, this pet dog. And tragically and very darkly for a kid's film, the dog, Sparky, gets hit by a car. Then Victor, who is an outsider, a science nerd, not your typical hero, right? Yeah. Reanimates Sparky, like Dr. Frankenstein's monster. It's dark, it's twisted, but it's a strangely heartwarming story. It's not the typical exploration of light and dark. It's all mixed up. So tell me about the process of that movie. Frank and Wayne is a really interesting case because it started as a live-action short film. And so mm-hmm. you know, live-action sort of normal actors and real dogs. And it was a short film, really well done, black and white. But when Tim came to me saying that he wanted to do a feature-length version of Frank and Wayne, he wanted to do it stop-motion, which we'd already done Course Bride. And like it felt like a good match to it. But like, it's really unusual for something to go from live-action to an animated short. We really looked at what are the possibilities of doing this in animation and what could be just fantastic. And not only do we have more time as a full-length feature film, but we could also sort of play into the tropes and expectations of what monster films are like. And so it wasn't just a Frankenstein story. We could have all the other kind of monsters show up as well. So we talk about Victor. Victor's a science nerd, an outsider. We needed to find a way to let his bringing Sparky back have a moral aspect to it, have a moral question to it. You know, he was doing it out of love. What's fascinating is like the other kids were trying to bring back their dogs or their other animals. They weren't doing it out of love or the same thing. They were doing it out of jealousy. And that really ties back into this issue of light versus dark. Victor may be doing a kind of dark thing to be reanimating his dog, but he's doing it out of love. He's doing it out of a place of light. These other kids are doing this out of jealousy or envy and those are really dark emotions and because of these dark emotions they create these actual genuine monsters who are bringing havoc to this town so it was a great chance to explore bigger themes just because we had more space to do it in and more characters in which to embody his choices it's funny because like usually the films the stories that are meant for young people will Mm -hmm. stay away from darkness or people have the expectation that they will stay away and you work very differently. And you have a daughter. So how old is your daughter now? My daughter is now 17. But I can tell you that when we were working on Frank and Weenie, I went to visit the production, the set in outside of London. And my daughter at that point was maybe six, maybe five. She was really young. And mm-hmm. uh, we were seeing all these stop motion sets. And so that's exactly what you see in the movie, but it's just that, you know, one fifth scale. And all these animators are busy working. And I'm talking through story. And at some point, she like sits down and refuses to like, move until I tell her like what happened to Sparky because she was so oh. concerned that the dog died. And I realized then, like, oh my gosh, we have to be really upfront with parents about like, 
yes, the dog dies and the dog comes right back by magic because otherwise kids are going to be just too scared and too traumatized by us. And it it was a challenge ultimately. People were sort of freaked out about it, but it's, I think, part of the reason why the movie has lasted so well is because we are very honest about sort of what it feels like to lose a pet. I, I knew that heartbreak, but also we're joyful at the end and then we were able to just come out of a dark place and get to a happy place through the end of it. But it's funny because I have two daughters of four. Yeah. And sometimes I try to keep them away from darker things, but they can't take it. And well, I'm wondering if it's not important that they see something that is dark and menacing and stuff. So they deal with, you know, life is not easy. I, I My thinking right now with my daughters is that maybe instinctively, we want to be exposed to the darkness like that and then the bad things because we need to, to learn to deal with these. Well, Michelle, I think what you're talking about is that the ability to tell dark stories or to, to tell stories like fables that involve aspects of darkness are ways of rehearsing, are ways of sort of mm-hmm. practicing and processing what it feels like to acknowledge that there is danger out there in the world, that evils exist, but that also evils can be defeated. And mm-hmm. so it's you don't want kids to experience trauma themselves but seeing other characters who they can relate to, but at a distance, that's you know, going through dark things can be really helpful. So that's why we show stories about like giants and witches who are showing kids into ovens. Like we would never show an actual child being harmed, but something about the safe remove of like, oh, this is a fairy tale world and a, and a candy house, and there's that witch who shoves kids into ovens. Kids can process that and not feel themselves in danger but also take with them the lesson like, oh, don't go into strange people's houses. Like that's that's a useful lesson to learn. Animation is great for that mm-hmm. because yeah. they can see themselves in it, but it's not real and they can feel some distance there. So, you know, Encanto, I thought was a terrific movie. Some really dark, scary stuff happens in, in Encanto, but because there's a, a level of remove because it's animation or yeah. sometimes it's because it's happening to animals rather than happening to people, it's safer for us. Is there authors that inspired you in your early years, uh, authors that have been exploring dark characters and environments and worlds? Definitely. In third grade, one of our class assignments is we had to write a letter to a famous person. It's basically to practice our penmanship, but we had to like pick a famous person and write them a letter. And so I picked wow. Roald Dahl, who wrote Charlotte and Chocolate Factory. And so I wrote this letter saying, no. Mr. Dahl, Charlotte and Chocolate Factory is my favorite book. I think it's a great book. No. I live in Boulder, Colorado, and sent that off. And he sent me a postcard back. And so I have this postcard, which I have framed from Roald Dahl, which is just a stock postcard. He signed his name, but there's nothing extra fancy about it. But it was uh, it was so meaningful to me. So when I went to meet with Tim Burton saying, like, let's do Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I could bring that postcard and say, like, listen, I actually do have like a deep connection and history here to that. Wow. And I was able to bring back what I remembered so vividly about that book, which was not just that like there's... A, a chocolate factory and that there's, you know, these rotten kids. I remember that Charlie Bucket's family seemed so perfect and so loving. They didn't have any money, but they all lived together in a little house and I sort of envied them all living together in that little house. And that I always felt kind of bad for Willy Wonka who lived all alone in that scary factory with no friends. And so when it came time to make the movie version of it, I could use my childhood memories of that experience and really bring that to the story and thematically sort of flip the protagonist-antagonist relationship in there so that Willy Wonka could have a transformation over the course of it. And I wasn't sort of stuck trying to transform this perfect little kid into another perfect little kid. 
What do we learn from empathizing with a seemingly dark character? I think one of the lessons can be how do we understand the darkness within ourselves? Because I think it's very hard for us to sometimes grapple with the fact that we have dark urges and dark motivations too. So we want to make sure that we are loving and kind and hopeful, but also we can be scared, we can be jealous, we can have these dark urges too. And sometimes if we see a um, a darker character there who's making choices that are sort of bad choices, it gives us some permission to acknowledge those choices in ourselves too, the times that we've been petty, the times that we've been weak or foolish or stubborn for no good reason. And so I think as we grow up and we become fans of more sophisticated storytelling, we recognize that our characters aren't all good, it's not light, they're not all angels, and that our villains are also people too, and that we don't have cartoonish villains who just want to do evil for evil's sake because that's not the experience of the world. Most of the evil characters who are doing dark things have in their mind a good reason for why they're doing it. In a minute, I'm going to continue this conversation with screenwriter and author John August, a conversation that asks how do classic power struggles like light versus dark or new versus old feed drama? How are they ultimately related to creativity? Just a quick reminder, you're listening to the Cirque du Soleil podcast, looking at the roots of creativity. My name is Michel Aprise. And if you like what you're hearing, I hope you tell your friends about us and leave us a review. I would love to hear about you. Fans go first. Whether it's early access to seasonal deals or pre-sales, pick your tickets before everybody else. Sign up for Club Sick today and you'll be the first to hear about access to special events, pre-sales and discounts. Take a look behind the curtain and enjoy up-to-date news on all things Cirque du Soleil, including shows, artists, and latest innovations. Visit CirqueDuSoleil.com to subscribe. So, John, we have talked a lot about darkness and light, but I also want us to get into the whole question of new versus old, of challenging the status quo. This is something our Sikh du Soleil show, Alegria, really gets into. I will quote something from the program. At the heart of a kingdom that has lost its king, Alegria witnesses the power struggle at play between the old order and a new movement yearning for hope and renewal. It's funny because Alegria was a pivotal moment in the history of Sikh du Soleil. And I got to speak with the director of that show, Franco Dragon, who passed away. Because in every Cirque du Soleil show, you got to have something to say, something visceral, because our creative process is pretty long. It's two years. And when there's a new theater building, it's three years. So you got to really embrace it. And we choose the themes of, uh, of our shows. We have a lot of freedom. So you have to choose something that will appeal, not only appeal, but be very important for you to to cohabit with for uh, that long duration of time. Uh, so I asked Franco, Alegria, why did you want to talk about the new and, and the old? He said, because I felt we were starting to get old as like the team of designers, and they were not. But the energy of Cirque is so young that you reach 36 and you start to want to make sure that you stay young and that you don't get into 
patterns and predictability and stuff. So that show was a way for them to think and to remind them of the importance of the young energy and attitude and openness to the world. So the idea in Alegria of the regimen change can be such an essential part of creating a dramatic storyline. And thinking about characters like Victor in Frank and Winnie or Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, they're both skinny little outsiders looked down on by the powers that, uh, that be. And they start out at the bottom of the heap. So why, why is it so appealing for you to create stories that reverse that social order? You know, you could build a Charlie and Chocolate Factory or a, a Frank and Winnie with like the kid who's already popular and has everything he, he needs and is sort of like surrounded by friends. That's entirely possible to do. The advantage to doing building the story around the outsider, around the kid, is that I think most of us subconsciously really identify with that. You know, most times we don't feel that we are in charge of our social world. We feel like we are the underdogs. And so sticking the character at the start of the story as the underdog is incredibly helpful for that. Now, outsiders can be noble, they can be tragic, they can be dangerous. But in the case of these stories, often the outsider is the one who really sees the world for what it actually is and for the has an honest take on sort of how things really mm. can function. And Arlo Finch is the same kind of character who is the wallflower, the one who is willing to mostly sit back and sort of watch and observe, but of, because of the nature of the story, has to step forward and take a leadership role. In the case of Frank and Weenie, Victor does what he does out of love. He brings back his dog because he desperately misses his dog and is doing it for good, noble reasons versus the other kids who are doing it for selfish reasons. The same dynamic holds true in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Charlie's there because he genuinely loves chocolate. He wants to be there and he wants to see what's inside this, this factory. He wants to bring his grandfather in to see the place where his grandfather used to work. The other kids are doing it for their own selfish reasons and they pay the price because of their selfish reasons. Hmm. Now, in the issue, this, this question of regime change and upsetting hmm. the natural order, I think we're all used to the status quo and the status quo doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel right. It feels like there's we're missing out on things we should be able to get or achieve. So letting that underdog achieve those things is a kind of wish fulfillment for the audience. Like, I wish I could stand up to that person. I wish I could change how this world is working. It's funny because Franco was first a social worker. Mm. So it was all about helping to empower people in society who, who are left aside. And the first theater shows that he was making, he was involving people from different communities and he was giving access to the, to the microphone to people who were, mm. who were voiceless. And clowns are really often the, the low-status uh, people, but at, at, in a circus show, they become the kings. Classically, clowns are also matches to the court jester. And the court jester in medieval times is the one person who could sort of like point out the problems of the kingdom and of the king because they were so, they were so low class that it didn't matter. No one could take offense because they were just the clown. And so it's really natural that so much of circus based off of that clowning tradition even as you sort of enter into a show, certain shows don't start with like a curtain coming down and they start kind of accidentally with like, you know, a clown in the audience who's interacting with people and sort of like getting the audience ready for what they're about to see and sort of misdirecting them so that when the big circus acts occur, they're not 
expecting the scale and the scope and the size. I'm also thinking about the introduction to O is that like it starts with with clowning acts and like bringing a, a member of the audience up on stage who we believe is just genuinely an audience member and who that gets pulled into the show itself mm-hmm. and it's, it becomes mm-hmm. part of the act. Um, and that's what you're trying to do in the course of a good, you know, piece of entertainment is make people kind of lose themselves and lose the boundaries between I'm watching a thing versus I'm participating in a thing. I have a little clip of Jean-Guy Legault. Jean-Guy was the director associated to the Alegria 2 because there was a, an original Alegria in 94. And then we re-released Alegria, but another director worked on it. It was an original show of Franco Dragon, so a lot of it was kept. But uh, there was somebody else uh, working on a different version of it. And we have a little clip. His name is uh, Jean-Guy Legault. Jean-Guy Legault, I'm the director of Alegria 2019. People are familiar with remakes, particularly of plays like Shakespeare and the other great classics. Doing this is kind of a first for us. But what we found interesting in Alegria is that its message, the reason it was created, is still relevant today. The piece explores the theme of resilience quite a bit. It's about a kingdom in turmoil because it lost its king. And the main character, Mr. Flar, who is still alive, tries to take over. He was the king's jester. And in the kingdom, which is not quite stagnant, but has been stuck in its ways for a long time, the status quo gets challenged and the wind of change gets blown in from the street by the Bronx. So that's something that we can sense strongly today, a desire for change that can be felt throughout the world. For us, it made sense that what we did with the reinterpretation of the show should be consistent with its message. We can't do it exactly the same way as it was done originally. That would be like going against the show's own message. In fact, Franco always used to say, I don't make museum pieces. So we're not going to take his work and remake it in the same way. The idea is to reinvent it and deliver something new. Today, we associate resilience with a sense of humanity. So we wanted to connect with the characters. You can see the hair, they're not all necessarily wigs. The makeup is done in a way that makes it possible to recognize the performers. We changed some of the costumes. People often ask me about the singer, but what exactly is the singer? She's the voice of the show. So that led us to ask, where does Alegria come from? It's a cry used in moments of great distress. Alegria, we're going to overcome these difficult times. In fact, it's a cry of hope. You have to feel that the person who sings it, who gives it wings, hasn't had a particularly easy life. It's a cry of resilience. So we're looking at something that gets lighter as it progresses, in terms of both the stage lighting and the angel's costumes, which look slightly dirty. And we can sense that at the beginning they're wearing the scars of what they suffered on Earth, but as it goes on, they become lighter, cleaner. We're creating a wind of change. We're keeping the show's DNA, but approaching it differently and making it relevant to 2019, which is a different time in a sense. So, John, as you know, what Jean-Guy is explaining is that in this particular case of Alegria 2019, the idea was to take a show that we retired a few years ago, and instead of bringing it in its original state, we thought, okay, how about revisiting it? 
the same story, same uh, fundamental themes, but with another team of designers. So new set, the costume designer transformed the costumes. And it was something, again, we never do. And, and we do it in very a smaller a scale. So someone gets injured and you need to replace an act or the act is with uh, 12 people is going to be with 10 people. So I'm interested to know, how do you find inspirations? What's your, your gymnastic of creativity? To me, it's always about filtering out sort of what's coming at me. And there'll be things that just intrigue me. And if an idea intrigues me long enough that it's, it stayed, sticks around for a week, two weeks, it's like it's competing for brain space. Like there's something about that idea that really wants me to notice it. But then I will spend the time to sort of write down what it is about it that is so appealing to me. And I usually have too many ideas and too many things I want to do. If I have to sort through them, I'll pick the one that seems like it has the best ending. Because I've learned that there's hmm. lots of great starts to things and there are very much fewer endings to things. So I'll pick the story that feels like, okay, I know where this goes to, I know how it ends. That's the ones that work for me. And if you think at Charlie and Chocolate Factory, I know how that ends. I, Big Fish, I know how that ends. Those are the ones that land because you can see hmm. what has been achieved by the character over the course of the story. Uh, and that ending may change, but if you don't have some sort of an ending at the start, if you don't know where you're going, then it's just... It's not really even a road trip. It's just, you're just wandering. You need to know sort of where you think you're going. You might change your destination ultimately, but you've got to have a plan at the start of where you're headed. It's like when you fish, you know exactly what the ending is, but the whole journey may be full of surprises. And uh, so do, you, do you see a lot of live shows, apart from Cirque, of course? Do you, do you go to the theater a lot? And do you see a lot of exhibitions in museums and galleries? And is, this, is visual arts important for you? Too? So here in Los Angeles, we're spoiled because we have a lot of shows. But every trip to New York City ends up being like four or five shows where I'm keeping up with sort of what's going on there. And will I love all of them? No. But will I learn something from all of them? Definitely. As an artist, you have to be continuously looking and seeing what else is out there in the culture and what clicks for, for you because that's what's going to help you understand what it will click for other people. Ooh. Visual arts are incredibly important as well. And I think just seeing how other people see the world is so vital, especially, again, mm. well in Los Angeles, we have a lot of yeah. touring exhibitions coming through from of international artists and just recognizing that our experience of what daily life is like is different than other people's. And how we consume media can be different than other people. And so find the, the similarities, but also the great differences. So yeah, we try to make, you know, at least once a month, a good museum date to go out and see what's new. Talking about creativity, I want to, you to tell us how it emerged in your life. How, how do you, did you become a writer? Like every other writer, I started out as a reader and I, was, I would read these books and I, I would imagine myself in those places. And eventually I started to, put words down on paper, you know, sort of describing the stories I would like to see. And that's my biggest piece of advice for anybody who wants to enter into a creative profession is create the art what you wish you could experience. And mm -hmm. so if you're a painter, you know, draw and paint the things you wish to, you could see hanging on your wall. And if you're a writer, write the stories you wish you could read. Uh, not the stories you wish someone would pay you to write. Mm -hmm. Write the stories that you most respond to because those personal things are going to be the things that other folks will recognize that connection in and that's what people are going to seek out from you it's so true at Cirque du Soleil our way to work is, is really like we want the artists the, uh, the acrobats the, 
the musicians, the singers to to express themselves. It's very mm-hmm. important. And the best shows at Sick are the ones where the director is allowing the artist to really not do what they think the director wants, but what they really deeply, yeah. viscerally want to do. So we're focusing today on epic power struggles such as light versus dark, evil versus good, and old versus new. And we're looking at how these classic dynamics of tension can be explored creatively, even flipped on their heads, mm-hmm. and how doing this can lead to creative breakthroughs. John, before I let you go, I want you to talk about if you have any personal experience where you had to deal with the power struggle, where you've managed to flip the scripts or upset the status quo in your life. Well, every three years, the Writers Guild, there's basically a union that represents all these screenwriters mm-hmm. and television writers in the business. And every three years, we have to have this big, scary negotiation with our employers, the studios, about how much we get paid for residuals, our working conditions. And that's scary and contentious, but it's also very routine. We sort of know that it's coming every three years. We know how it all works. A few years ago, the members of the Writers Guild said, like, you know what, there's another big problem that we're not talking about is that we we have these agents who work with us, who are supposed to be working for us, and it feels like we're kind of working for them. There's like a, a really weird power imbalance there. And I was a, a member of the Writers Guild board at that point, and we decided, like, you know what, we're going to have a big negotiation with all the agencies. And it was really, really difficult and scary and contentious and controversial. And we didn't know how it was going to end. There wasn't a framework for what it was going to look like. And so it was really changing a big power dynamic in the business. Ultimately, we succeeded, but it was like a two-year struggle that was really contentious and had a lot of bad feelings. And yet, I learned so much going through it. And it made me recognize that so often we're writing stories with our heroes, our protagonists, who have to undertake this difficult thing with adversity. They're not sure where they are, how it's all going to sort itself out. I definitely felt myself for the first time being like the protagonist in one of my stories. And that I felt like I'm really out at sea here and yet I'm doing the best I can to sort of figure out how to address what's happening in front of me and how to defeat this one problem as we then tackle the next problem. So in my life recently, that's probably been the biggest case of having to flip the script and sort of do a regime change kind of overhaul in my life. We had to figure it all out. We had to build alternate systems. It was like Mm -hmm. as if a flood had knocked out all the bridges and you were stranded someplace. You had to figure out a new way to do stuff. But ultimately, we prevailed. And one by one, the agencies agreed to a new contract with us, a new deal with us. And eventually, the biggest agencies agreed to do it as well. It was scary. And it took a really long time. It was a hard fight, but I'm, I'm, I think we're better for having fought it. I want to extend a, a big, big thank you to you. Of course. Uh, and uh, from everybody here at Cirque Soleil, and so from all of us here, a big, big thank you. Your, your stories explore themes of power in such a fascinating way. They feature unlikely or even sometimes monstrous anti-heroes who challenge the status quo. In doing this, they make us reimagine our expectations and our definitions of light and darkness. In the end, I think your stories create a kind of sympathy for the devil and they teach us something about what it means to be human. And this is why I can connect you very well with the way we work at SICTA. We're really human-centered and not about judgment because, you know, human condition is not easy. Even the evil characters have a, a soft place in yeah. humanity. So 
Thank you so much for your time with us today. It's been a great conversation. Michelle, thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. To the listeners, I want to thank you for your presence. Join us for each episode as we delve into the themes and ideas that underpin Cirque du shows. Learn more about the roots of creativity and how to keep your eyes, mind, and heart open to new sources of creative inspiration. And remember, it can come from anywhere and anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Sit to Sound. I am Michel Apis. À la prochaine. Sit to Sound is produced by Sit to Soleil with technical and story production by Char Audio. If you like what you heard today on Cirque du Sound, please subscribe, comment, and leave a review. 